Welcome to the Finance Cafe podcast, the business podcast for women entrepreneurs that breaks through the money taboo and explores what's behind the numbers. Join your hosts, Shannon Peston and Shauna Frederick every week as they dive into conversations about business and finance with women entrepreneurs and the experts that support them to answer all those questions you have about the numbers and maybe some you haven't even thought of yet. With their combined experience in business, finance, and accounting, Shannon and Shauna know that financial management is more than just understanding the numbers, but understanding how our unique lived experiences, knowledge, thoughts, and behaviors around money shape the financial decisions we make in our companies. Here on the Finance Cafe podcast, presented by Canada's Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, we're changing the way we talk about business and finance, empowering women entrepreneurs to see their business in a new light one conversation at a time. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the Finance Cafe. This month, we're celebrating the voices of Indigenous women who are shaping Canada's entrepreneurial landscape. On today's show, we welcome Bobby Reset, founder and CEO of Virtual Gurus, a talent marketplace that leverages proprietary technology to match organizations and entrepreneurs with highly skilled Canadian and American fractional administration workers. Forbes recently announced Virtual Gurus as one of the top 19 innovative tech startups to watch. Bobby is on a mission to create employment opportunities for historically underrepresented individuals including First Nation, Métis and Inuit peoples, members of the LGBTQ2 communities, racialized peoples, individuals of alternate abilities, and those living in remote communities. She's an unstoppable force in the Canadian startup community and acts as a mentor for e-commerce North and serves on the board of the TELUS Friendly Future Foundations. She's also a member of the 51's Community Council and Calgary's core working group, ensuring the voices of underrepresented folks are included at both local and national levels. Named as one of 50 changemakers for 2021 by Report on Business magazine, Bobby was also recently honored by Startup Canada as Indigenous Entrepreneur and Women Entrepreneur of the Year. I first met Bobby in 2019 and since then have watched her entrepreneurial journey with pride and amazement. Bobby's story is one of heart, perseverance, resilience, and trailblazing. And I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say in this week's episode. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Uh, hi, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. I always love the time I get to spend with you. And I know how many people are going to be envious that I got this time with you, Bobby, because it just, I know how busy you are. So thank you so much for taking the time. But let's get to, I mean, I know everyone, it seems everybody knows who Bobby Rousset is these days. You're everywhere, you know, you're just making waves, not just in the tech industry, but for women entrepreneurs, for Indigenous women entrepreneurs. But before we dive into all of that, tell us a little bit about Virtual Gurus and where that inspiration came from for you. Thanks, Shannon. I know I've been so busy lately, and uh, it's funny because the requests just keep coming. So right now, we're actually having to turn down about 70% of the requests, and it just goes to show that, yeah, we're paving the way and and uh, we need more Indigenous entrepreneurs to just jump out and, and be there. So 
I'm proud to be that person. But yeah, so founder and CEO of Virtual Gurus. And uh, we are a talent marketplace platform where we provide uh, workers to businesses and entrepreneurs of all sizes. We do this by uh, leveraging our new AI-powered work-from-home platform. So we've essentially built this platform all on our own in this last two years with the funding that we have raised. And uh, we're able to uh, create the matches based on AI. So we're matching people that are better going to get along with those workers, therefore creating a longer LTV um, lifetime value. And what makes us different is all the people in the platform are traditionally underserved talents. So um, they haven't really been given the opportunity to have work from home opportunities like this. And uh, so we've spent a lot of time really working and getting to know them and the data behind it, knowing that we are able to empower them to work from home and make a a good living. Well, I'm actually sitting at the Alberta Women Entrepreneurs Conference here in Calgary. And I have to tell you, like you're so your timing for this was just so perfect. I've heard so many women who are excited to see you speak today, but also the ones that are mentioning they're using you for their VA services and just like full props to the work that you're doing. So I know that uh, government has spoken about you today. Women entrepreneurs have spoken to you, as is the ecosystem. So, and I also happen to know that you're going to be a keynote speaker here later today. And I know how excited we all are to see you. But talking about underrepresented talent, like where did this inspiration come from for you? When I was, uh, you know, working in oil and gas up until 2016, I was laid off. And even before that, nobody would really give me an opportunity or a chance. And uh, so after I was laid off, I was trying to find work and I mean, you know, administration being my background and sales, sales is my big thing too. Uh, nobody would, nobody would hire me. And I started wondering what it was, like why, what was going on. And I mean, you know, let's face it, like, you know, administration, people were fit in the, the, the look, right? Like not really Donna from suit style. So I, uh, I had, uh, you know, I was a little bit more bigger with tattoos, short hair, um, and I'm an Indigenous woman. So uh, people were certainly, you know, interviewing me, but I wasn't really moving past the interview process based on my looks. And so uh, I, I decided, you know, when I created this job or created Virtual Gurus, it really was just to create a job for myself. And after I realized that I was onto something, I, I realized that was a perfect opportunity for me to say, hey, you know what, let's open this up as a platform for others like me. And, uh, you know, if you would have asked me when I first started if, if it would be this big, I would have laughed and said, absolutely not. It was really just for me. You know, it's just all of a sudden I realized it just started snowballing and like, oh, I'm onto something. Let's let's just roll with it. <laughs> Well, that is the crazy part about your story, because I know that becoming a CEO was never on your bucket list. And and, and quite honestly, you and I have spoken about this uh, before. And I was actually talking about you in another uh, presentation I gave this week to the Sheik Geek community. I mean, you actually hired someone else at one point in time to be the CEO of, of your company. And so I know you were hesitant to be the face of it, but what drove the decision to bring someone else on like and what did you learn from that talk about imposter syndrome at its finest right I really didn't think I had the ability to do it I started it I started being the VA um, and realizing okay I can probably build this into something but I have no experience at all I'll never be able to do it and I just really doubted myself which I can say probably 
95% of women that might even listen to this podcast are have thought and doubted themselves at one point in their journey, in their entrepreneurial journey. And um, at the time, I really, really thought, you know what, I can take this somewhere big if I just let somebody that has experience. And so I ended up going on Kijiji and posting an ad, somebody to be CEO of my gig economy company. <laughs> it was so bad. Um, I mean, I laugh so much at it now, but I mean, in retrospect, I think it was actually what really set the foundation for what Virtual Gurus is today because the person that I did hire, wonderful guy, however, he wasn't right fit. Six months later, he was taking my vision totally nowhere near what my vision was at all. Um, in fact, it was just, it was going way into the weeds. It wasn't even going where I needed it to go. I then realized that I needed to stand up, have confidence and say, hey, you know what? There's nobody better to run this business than me. And so I took it back and and <laughs> and then now it is where it's at. <laughs> I, I mean, the story in and of itself of just how you found your CEO. And I love that you're saying he's a wonderful person. But how often as women do we think that we don't deserve a seat at our own table? Yeah. And you know, mm -hmm. and talking about someone who didn't see your vision, Bobby, that wasn't the first time that someone didn't see the vision. And in fact, yeah. when I think about your funding journey, let's talk about the fact that you had to overcome 117 no's prior to becoming not only a woman who raised a Series A, but the first Indigenous woman to close Series A funding. So first of all, congratulations. I know that always gets a massive applause, but you never gave up on that vision. And I, I guess I'm curious because we know that access to financial capital is the number one barrier for women. How did you stay motivated? <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, almost felt like I was a train wreck in that for the first little bit. And then, uh, you know, you go through the major emotions, the roller coaster emotions. Those emotions don't change even when you go on to higher uh, rounds. Like we're looking at our Series B right now. But, you know, the first uh, 20 no's, I really let it beat me down. And one of my really good mentors, uh, Ryan Laley, who sits on my board now, he really encouraged and, and talked me through it and said, you know, they're just not the right investors. Keep going. It, it really was about confidence. At the same time, it was about not letting the no's hurt me and and really understanding that I need to overcome rejection. Um, I've had rejection many points in my life before my entrepreneurial journey. And, and so a lot of it brought back memories to that. Um, and so I really had a hard time empowering myself to say, hey, you can do this. You can do this and get over that. But I'd say around the 50th, 60th or 70th, no, <laughs> something turned. It was a whole new leaf. Like things just started turning. Um, I started letting the nose feel my fire. I started saying, you know what? You're going to say no to me. I'm going to find out why. And I'm going to like ask you why. And I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. And you need to tell me the real why as opposed to the can't it's not scalable lie or, or it's not in our thesis lie, you know, because people wouldn't they wouldn't exercise a conversation with you if you weren't scalable. They wouldn't exercise a conversation with you if it wasn't in their thesis. Like, so what they would originally or eventually like what they would, would invest in. So those to me were not right responses where at first I was taking those. And then I started realizing I needed to stand up. I deserved a good explanation as to why. And, uh, you know, once I started doing that and really, really holding my own power 
things started turning a little bit more. Still got a lot of more no's, <laughs> but 80 more no's after that. But it didn't beat me down. It was easier just to let the, the nose ping off of me and take every no as as a, a fuel and, and empower my strength to keep going. Um, I'd have to thank my parents for being there because I think a lot of times they were the only ones that could hear me crying at night about it and saying, this isn't fair. Like, I don't know what to do. But I kept going. And uh, I'm thankful that I did because I think that that actually gave me the strength now to be the CEO that I am, because being a CEO, you have to learn to say no in a way. And so taking the way those no's came to me and turning it around to how I say no to my employees at times, but by making them understand, making them understand that I care while saying no at the same time, where I didn't necessarily get that from these investors. So I, I take everything as a learning lesson. And um, I kind of recycle it back out saying, okay, you know, I don't want them to feel like how I felt. And uh, so I'm I'm happy I did that. At the end of the day, I'm I'm happy I went through the 170 no's. In my Series A round, I did not go through that many no's. In fact, almost everyone I pitched came in on the funding round. Um, I was able to close my Series A round in six months, less than six months. My seed round was uh, two years and that was two years of people saying no. And now we're going into our Series B round. Yeah, it's that old adage. It's easier to get money once that that momentum is moving. So maybe just for our listeners, what's the difference between seed rounds and Series A or Series B? But let's talk about seed and Series A right now. And you actually you maybe even transitioning to Series B because that's where you're headed next. Yeah, it, it goes essentially on valuation where you're at in scalability mode. So when you're first starting a startup, especially a technology startup, you go through a few funding rounds because technology, you need to burn money so that you have people that are building the technology. You're not really necessarily doing high revenue yet because you're building tech. Whereas with us, we were building tech while also building revenue. And so in order to do that, you have to be able to pay all the staff. So you have to raise. So your first funding round is typically your fam- family and friends round. That's where you'll get anywhere under 200000 and you raise money within. You might give equity. You might use it as a, a note, you know, a convertible note, whatnot, that converts into shares. The seed round is, uh, you can do a pre-seed or a seed round. We just did a seed round. And the seed round is essentially where you have a little bit of revenue, you have an MVP, but it's still early stage. You're not quite at the part of, is this going to go somewhere or is this going to not go somewhere? You're in that middle stage where you're building and trying to figure it out. And you're still trying to figure everything out. Like it's still a mess. It's hard. You don't know what's up from down. You're using Excel sheets. You're building tech. And so that's more of a round based on your valuation. So our seed round was uh, 1.25 million. And then once you get past that and you're into scale mode where you are high revenue, you're you're onto something, your MVP is is taking a hit, you you know that you're growing and scaling, you're doing you're on your way to high revenue to successful um, month over month growth, then you go into your series A round. And at that point, some people, once you hit Series A, you're always going to be raising. Um, you're most, you're not quite at your EBITDA, positive EBITDA yet. Um, and so then from there, it sometimes lasts a long time. But for us, we closed our Series A in March of 2022, and that was 8.4 million. 
And so now almost exactly a year later, well, look at that, March 24th, we're um, already uh, made the decision to jump into Series B. Now that said, we have enough runway uh, for another 10 months, but we also have a 3 million non-dilutive, which means like we can, it's a essentially a, a loan from a bank. So we can extend our runway if we want, but typically you don't want to. So you just try to go for your Series B. And then our Series B round is uh, where we've proven that we're scalable. We're about to go to mass scale. Um, you know, we could probably go to a couple hundred million in revenue a year, and then you could actually take it from there. And uh, your Series B is a much higher amount. Wow. As someone who's never gone through the process, like, I just feel like this is like information. Like my brain is just like, I don't even know where to start. So I guess maybe the important thing too to, to maybe ask is like, how did you, is it your investors that are helping you through this process? Like who's helping to advise you? Do you have coaches? Like what, how, what, what does that look like for you? Where does that support come from? I mean, my my board of directors are the ones that decide when we're going for it. Um, they do it's like an internal vote on the board. Um, we decide and they basically say, okay, Bobby, let's start getting prepared for Series B. And I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I have to. It's part of the job of being a CEO, right? In the end, um, I'm the one that does raising. So I'm a little bit, I wouldn't say control freak when it comes to my relationship building. But I I would say that I value the type of investors that I want to approach based on those 170 no's that said no to me. Yeah. Because I know now who I do not want to approach. And so I don't want to hire anybody to do it for me because nobody can tell the story better than me. And I think it's very important for me to be that person. Um and so I'm the one that does all the pitches. I'm the one that does all of it. I, I do meeting after meeting after meeting. I travel everywhere to, to meet with investors. I nurture. I basically am courting them. Like you're going on your first date, second, third date. And and then um, and then I get my CFO involved. And then from there, my CFO, my VP of controller, they are the ones that uh, start working with me on negotiations with them. So, I mean, it's it's a process, but... I've, I'd like to think that it worked great for my Series A, so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue that for my Series B. And how do you protect like the integrity? I know vision is so important to you, and and even just thinking about the types of investors that you want to bring in. And often we'll hear comments like, you know, when you bring in equity investors, you lose you know you lose scope of the vision, or you might lose control of that. How how important is it to find an investor that? understands the vision and wants to be there to see this vision come to fruition, obviously adding what they can to it. But how do you, how do you hold true to what this, what this journey has been for you? You know, the vision and the, my why is super important to me. I do know that the larger and bigger we get, especially when we get into acquisition mode, meaning people are going to try to acquire us. It's already happening. I know the one thing that when I let go of this company that is probably going to be let go as well from the entire, from the future of this company will be the impact, um, which is our North Star, which is our underserved talent. As long as it is under my watch, I will never, ever go away from that. I won't be able to control that when I'm no longer part of the company. Um, But as long as under my watch, I will never take that away. So for me, it's important that you're telling that story to the investors that come in, that you're laying that foundation down from the beginning, being transparent that that is your why. So it's in my uh, pitch deck. It's in my financials. It's in the story. It's everywhere around 
And, and it will be very difficult to take that story away from virtual groups because that is what we're known for. That's why our largest companies come to us. Like we have massive, huge clients, um, you know, like TELUS, BMO, IDEO Design Thinking, and some other large ones that use our service. And the reason they do is because of the DEI measures that we're able to provide them. So I don't think that an investor would want to take that away being at the scale we're at. That said, my goal would be not to target VC investors that are more oil and gas brand. Um, you want to look for the right investors that understand impact. We're impact, but we're marketplace impact with a really good profit margin. So it, it impact investors like that, especially funds. Um, a lot of funds are impact funds where multiple people are putting their funds into it. They really like those types of investments. So I'm definitely going to still target those kind of investors. In fact, I think 70% of my investors now are all from um, impact funds. So I'll, I'll, I'll still go after that. I do have to go after a little bit more of the higher VCs and a Series B. You know, we want to get a minimum check size of $4 million for this next round. So if they want to come in, they have to be able to, to commit to $4 million at a minimum. And so most impact investors on our smaller scale won't be able to commit to that. So you have to now go for those higher impacts, which is a little bit tougher. I'm going to have to go to the U.S. mostly. But Wow. Yeah. What do you wish? I mean, as you're going through this journey, what do you wish that you would have known when the start? What do you wish you would even know now, like about about this journey? I think all things financial would have been really good to know. I I don't know anything financially when I came into this. Um, all of this that I talk about now is just from learning on my own and trying to figure it out and like, spending many many hours online trying to learn. How do I invest? Or how do I get investors? How do I do this? Or what is a PL? What is margins? What is LTV? Like I had to learn it all on my own. I had nobody to show me that. And so I, I really do wish that they were in high schools, they would give you financial um, courses, you know, um, because I think that if I was in high school, if I think back to my high school time, if I was getting some sort of financial training, I would have been so much more better with my personal life and my money, but it would have been a lot better than I was starting off at this company and trying to figure out my way through money. I think a lot of people would get into business more if they understood the finance behind it, you know, and I still don't know. I'm so thankful that I have a CFO and a VP of controller and a whole finance team that fills me in. And I tell them often, like, give it to me at a grade eight level because this stuff is like, a whole different language to me. And so it's it's something you have to continuously learn. And so I think that if somebody would have told me that, you know, you really need to understand finance, you know, and obviously, you know, you're not going to know everything. So you just have to be, have the, to adapt and have the ability to learn. But still, if I would have known more about finance, it would have been so much more easier. Well, I feel like you could be a walking commercial for the finance cafe with that. And you know, and that's what you just said so many things there. It's the language that the industry uses. It's the not knowing. It's the not being socialized and not bringing financial conversations to life earlier for us at a young age. And then ultimately not even understanding the gender norms or some of the intersectional uh, differences when it comes to, to money. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I also appreciate the fact that even that you didn't know this, this wasn't second nature to you, that you made the commitment to learn. And I think that is the most important thing. I know my partner, Shauna, and I, when we're doing our financial, mm -hmm. like it's one of the things that we always say, like you're not meant to be an accountant, but you want to make sure that you 
put the right people around you, but more importantly, that you make the commitment to understand because you know every decision that you make in your company comes with a financial consequence. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about money mindset a little bit. Um, you mentioned, you know, you would have felt better off you know, knowing this and learning some of these principles earlier, but how has your money mindset shifted over over the years? Did you ever like did you ever question your relationship with money or how you felt about earning or borrowing or taking money from investors? Like how has your money mindset changed? I mean, it's changed huge. <laughs> um, when I first started Virtual Grooves, I certainly undermined Virtual Grooves' power of being a successful company. So when I brought on that CEO, I gave out way too much equity. Um, and so that was uh, the biggest mistake for me. And it was because I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. I went on Kijiji to bring somebody in to help me and gave up a really big chunk of my company for very, very little money. And so it went from really not knowing and not understanding to being lost and almost being um, unwilling to learn at that point because I found that it was just too much for me. I didn't get it. Um, To then realizing that obviously I had to take my power back and I had to be uh, confident and stand up and say, I'm going to do this. So then it changed to, okay, so how do I not burn money now? (laughs) Because burn is super important when you're bringing in fast monthly reoccurring subscription. Like, so we're, we're reoccurring revenue. So every month we climb between 15 to 40% month over growth on top of our current, and it just keeps going and going. So when I was, uh, you know, a couple of years in where I don't know, maybe about a million to 2 million in revenue, and uh, it just kept going. And I realized, oh, man, I'm going to really have to learn what I'm doing. And one of the first things I learned was the burn, cash burn. You know, it's hard. Right. And so I had to really learn a lot about the cash burn. So then the mindset changed to, OK, how do I become lean? How do I build this into a lean machine? Like that was hard. And then it went into now is how to preserve my runway. I mean, let's be real. Everybody knows that there's a macroeconomic environment going on with 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 companies like everybody with the macroeconomic environment. Everybody is 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 there's a lot of fear. You know, you got to be super careful. You got to think about your 10 next steps ahead right now, not just your two, second next steps ahead, your, your, your two or three. You have to three think so far ahead right now because of the way the economic environment is. So now it's all about how do I preserve my runway while burning and make sure that I can keep money in the bank and keep lights on before I have to raise money. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that has changed so much from lack of knowing to now I know to now being completely almost driven off of the data behind the money and saying, okay, this is what's, what's amplifying my decisions right now. I have to stop here. I have to do this. I have to do this. And so yeah, it's such a it's such a mind mess sometimes because then you don't really think, right? You're thinking, oh man, I could just spend here, I could take my team on a retreat, I could do this, I could make them all happy. And then and then you look and you're, oh man, I just burnt a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> well, yeah, I so I guess, and I love that you just said that is the numbers are the data that drive the decisions that you get to yeah. make. Bobby, I want to mm-hmm. ask you, I mean, as as we're both cremate women, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. I guess I wanted, one of the things that you said to me a long time ago was that for you, entrepreneurship is medicine. 
<laughs> and I I want to talk a little bit more about that and what that means for you specifically. Yeah. So years ago when I was young, I have a severe skin disease. So it's called polymorphous light eruption. So from when I was very young to teenager, I t- couldn't touch sunlight or any light, actually. Um, I would break out in like third degree burns all over my entire body. I spent many, many, many years in the hospital. And I became this introverted, shy, uh, broken kid in high school. And I got bullied because of it and who I was because of my skin disease. And then coming to terms with my sexuality and all of all of this just kind of hit a, a toll and I, I had no direction. You know, I would be one of those kids sitting in the basement and, uh, you know, playing video games and just not wanting to make a living, not wanting to do anything. I was depressed and it really, I really struggled with my life because of my skin disease. So fast forward to this, this company and launching up the company, I was really challenged from day one. Like I'm notoriously known for, choking in my pitch, choking at my pitch here in Calgary. My first time getting on stage and having to do my demo, a demo day. I literally five minutes before going on stage, walked out of the building, picked up my bag, walked out of the building and said, I'm out. I don't like this because I don't like all eyes on me. I don't like any of that. And I, it was just a lot of uh, flashbacks from my childhood came back and uh, I really struggled with it, but I had to push through it. And so I find that the business has given me a lot of medicine to persevere and be resilient and get through that. Who I am now versus who I was two years ago, let alone five years ago, let alone seven years ago, is such a different person that oftentimes my mom looks at me and she's like, who are you? Like, you know, and um, it, it's it's helped me be the person I am today. And so I've looked at not only money as medicine, because I'm very thankful and I'm very, very thankful and grateful that the fact that I am blessed with the situation that I am in the public eye right now and that I do have this business that I, I I believed in and that I am inspiring people. And so I look at that as being medicine to me. And so that's why I think the whole entire company has been medicine for me, including all the money that has come with it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just find that so powerful because I think about my own entrepreneurial journey and how it's been medicine for me and how I feel like through my work, I'm also able to give so much back mm-hmm. to community, back to women and, and helping more women start and grow their business. And I just, I feel so grateful, kind of like you, I see money as, as medicine too, because the more mm-hmm. that we give, the more that we can get. And um, so thank you for, for sharing that. Cause I know that's more of the personal side, but I, all of us come with a mm-hmm. story and our businesses come with mm-hmm. a story. And I think that's why so profoundly I'm, I'm impacted by women's businesses because there's always a reason to why they started. It's there's always a story and and I appreciate you sharing yours. So when you think about the future of women's entrepreneurship, what changes do you believe will have the biggest impact on a more inclusive environment and why? Um, I think it would be, you know, more investment companies um, and more, I guess, funds, more funds, more, you know, that are believing in women-led companies like us and investing in women-led companies and and supporting women-led companies. Um, I think that it's already happening. You can see big changes like, you know, companies like the 51 are coming in and 
helping young uh, women-led startups that aren't being given a chance. And, you know, but with it, I also think in the Indigenous community as well. Uh, you know, Raven Indigenous Capital just raised a $100 million fund and they're now able to get back and, and keep investing into uh, Indigenous-led startups and companies that are not even just tech startups. They're investing in non-tech too. So I think those uh, kind of impact companies that are coming forward and those funds that are coming forward like that are going to make such a big change because, I mean, if you put together all of the companies out there right now that have funding or needed funding, so much more right now is going on the story of the underserved people. And it's it's because we need to shout that out more in order to inspire the next generation to come out. So I think it's starting. I could see the changes happening and I could see that, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, of course. Like I shouldn't be the first Indigenous woman to close a Series A. And I'm most likely going to now be the first Indigenous woman to close a Series B. So although I love that title, I shouldn't be there. There should have been tons of more people before me. It's something where the change is starting to happen. We just have to keep up with the momentum and not let it slip. Well, that see it, be it notion is so important, not just for other women to see what they can aspire to, but also to help the full ecosystem see what is possible when we look at a more diverse and inclusive economy. So Mm -hmm. my last question for you is if you had a theme song to wrap up this journey. (laughs) It would actually be Follow the Sun by Xavier Rudd. Have you heard it? Well, I know yeah. Xavier Rudd, but I don't know that I know the song. Yeah, it's it's hands down one of my favorite uh, songs. And whenever I'm having a bad day or I'm just not feeling good or or I just overwhelmed, I, I blast it in my office here and crank it up and just dance in my room or whatever. And I just have to like get away. But there's a line in there. It's called Set Your Intentions and Dream With Care. Um, and so it's it's something to me that just means a lot to me. And so I think it's uh, essentially what, you know, I've done was I've set my intentions with this company and I, I I don't lose sight of my focus and I just keep going. So, yeah, follow the sun. Xavier Wright. Everybody should follow go listen. Follow the sun. Well, well, speaking of following, I cannot wait to follow what is next for you. And I can't see the wait to see all that follows because of your trailblazing uh, career and journey as an entrepreneur. And, you know, thank you from, you know, from the bottom of my heart, not only just for showing up today, but in all the ways that you show up, I feel very lucky because I know we've been in different cities together at the same time. And I messaged you to say, are you here? And we've already missed each other. So yeah. to think that I'm going to see you twice in one day when I've been trying for yeah. to connect with you. This is amazing. And I just, I am so grateful to you and uh, proud to call you a friend and continue to follow that son, Bobby, and know that you yeah. have Um, you have many of us who are championing uh, from the side. Thank you. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Finance Cafe podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know by leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. And to ensure you never miss a new episode, make sure you subscribe to the show. If you'd like to stay connected with us, you can find us on social at the Finance Cafe official or on our website at thefinancecafe.ca. See you again next week for another episode of the Finance Cafe podcast.